Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number three, the book of Matthew, chapter one continued. In our previous lesson, we studied at length the genealogy of Yeshua because it opens Matthew's Gospel. And we discovered that Matthew seems to have created a structure for his genealogy based on the numbers 3, 14, and 42. Now it's unknown by Bible research scholars whether this was an original thought for Matthew, or if he merely found it in an earlier document and used it, because after all, all three Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had to have used earlier documents to draw from because none of these writers were present with Christ. However, no such earlier document with the same or a similar genealogy for Jesus, based on that same structure, has ever been discovered. So that one might exist is purely conjecture. Now, an important point to keep in mind is that unlike in modern times when genealogies are meant to be precise reconstructions of one's family tree, that was not necessarily the goal of of genealogies among the Hebrews in ancient times. Their goal was to prove something. And what was meant to be proved was flexible according to the author's agenda. So, what we find in Matthew's genealogy seems to be an emphasis on the mathematics that in that era were considered somewhat mysterious and itself imparted a message. The scholarly name for this focus on numbers and their meaning is gematria. Clearly, being precise about Yeshua's ancestral tree was not the goal, because some generational names are skipped. Now, Matthew honed in on the importance of Christ being the Son of David. Drawing upon that, we find that in Hebrew, in Hebrew David's name consisted of three letters, all consonants, and the gematria value of his name is 14. So accordingly, Matthew structured his genealogy by dividing up this long list of Yeshua's ancestors into three groups of 14, with David's name being listed, not surprisingly, as the 14th name in the first group. When you multiply 3 times 14, you come up with 42. And due to the ongoing occupation of Rome, the bulk of the Holy Land Jewish population believed that they were either living in the end times or that it was imminent. And because the advent of the Messiah was thought by the most learned Jews in Matthew's era, to be an end times event, and because the book of Daniel 
was so highly popular in that same era as the source of end times prognostications, then when we find in Daniel um, that in the end times, 42 months plays a crucial role, then the connection between all of these numbers, 3, 14, 42, all of these numbers all comes together in a very numbers conscious culture and it makes complete sense. Keep in mind that Matthew was a Jewish believer and his gospel was constructed primarily for reading by other Jewish believers. Now, another interesting feature of Matthew's genealogy was the inclusion of four women, something quite rare. But even more, every one of these women began life as Gentiles. He could have included more women, possibly even Rachel, since she too probably began life as a Gentile, but he didn't. My speculation for why he didn't, why Matthew didn't, is that he specifically wanted to arrive at the number four because of its meaning in Gematria. Four is meant to indicate universal inclusiveness, something that's widespread, if not global. It is derived from the fact that a compass has four directions, and the belief in that era was that the earth was flat, was more or less square, and had four corners. Then there is this interesting matter of when we compare Luke's gospel genealogy to Matthew's. And there's always been a, a Christian scholarly focus on the exact names and the order of these two genealogies, Matthew's and Luke's. And so various explanations have been formulated to explain some of the obvious differences between them. Yet those explanations and perceived differences are based on modern Western thinking, not on ancient Eastern thinking. And there are two glaring differences that just seem to get overlooked, which are in line with how the Hebrews thought about things. The first is that while Matthew lists his genealogy in a typical Hebrew descending fashion, that is, the genealogy begins with the oldest ancestor and then works its way backwards down towards the person whose genealogy is being presented, Luke's is in an ascending genealogy that begins with the person of interest and eventually makes its way up to the oldest ancestor as the final entry. Further, Matthew's genealogy lists Abraham as Yeshua's oldest ancestor, while Luke, he lists Adam as his oldest ancestor. This actually makes sense. Matthew was a Hebrew. Luke almost certainly was not a Hebrew. He was a Gentile. So for Matthew, the ancestral father 
of Yeshua was, of course, the father of all Hebrews, who is Abraham, not Adam. However, for the Gentile Luke, his focus was on connecting Yeshua all the way back to the universal father of all humanity, Gentile and Hebrew, Adam. Thus, we see how both Matthew and Luke had certain agendas in mind as they each constructed their own genealogies of Christ. Now, theirs was not spin. It was not an attempt to distort or to deceive. It was simply their personal worldviews, which included how the purpose of genealogies was thought of in their era, and it was part of the message that each gospel writer was attempting to impart to his readers. Now, another important principle that is woven throughout all of the Gospels, and the New Testament in general for that matter, was that Messiah was to be seen as the inaugurator of a re-creation of everything, a second Genesis. All was to be remade new. As Matthew begins to tell his story, of Jesus' birth, he immediately brings up the issue of Mary becoming pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to pause for just a moment to explain something. Often we hear the term uh, immaculate conception in regards to that event. In effect, this is conflating two entirely different things. The Immaculate Conception is purely Roman Catholic doctrine that has little to do with the birth of Christ. Rather, it is a doctrine held as a core belief that the Virgin Mary was herself conceived by a divine miracle. That's what made Mary then free from sin, you see? That's Roman Catholic doctrine. It's called the Immaculate Conception. So in many respects, the thought is that Mary conceived her son in the same way that she was conceived. In Roman Catholicism, this now allows for elevating Mary beyond normal human status to the semi-divine, if you would. Now, included in the story of Christ's birth is this matter of Mary and Joseph being betrothed. Now, for believers living in modern times, we need to think of betrothal, biblical betrothal, more as marriage than as engagement. Even though during this period of betrothal, the girl still lived with her father, she was called wife immediately upon her betrothal, and called widow should her betrothed husband die. The reality is that for the Jewish readers of Matthew's Gospel, the mention of Yosef and Miriam 
being betrothed mostly meant that at, that the time for her moving in with him had not come yet. And it means that they were not yet permitted to have marital intimacy. Other than for that, they are completely married as we think of it today. In fact, for a betrothal to be called off, a get, a divorce document, had to be issued by the man. Because upon the betrothal, a marriage contract between the man and the girl's father had been drawn up and executed. It was a done deal. Now we left off at the point last week when Joseph was trying to figure out what to do about this shameful dilemma of his betrothal's betrothed pregnancy. And he had decided he would not publicly denounce her or charge her with a crime that literally could end with her execution. Rather, he'd merely handle things as quietly and privately as possible. Which meant that he would end the betrothal by handing Mary's father a divorce document. However, as Yosef slept a very uneasy sleep, he was visited in a dream by an angel who brought him a message from God that gave him very different marching orders. So open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 18, which means if you have a complete Jewish Bible, that'll be on page 1224. 1224. We're going to read verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Follow along with me. Here is how the birth of Yeshua the Messiah took place. When his mother Miriam was engaged to Yosef before they were married, she was found to be pregnant from the Ruach HaKodesh, from the Holy Spirit. Her husband-to-be Yosef was a man who did what was right. So he made plans to break the engagement quietly rather than put her to public shame. But while he was thinking about this, an angel of Adonai appeared to him in a dream and said, Yosef, son of David, do not be afraid to take Miriam home with you as your wife. For what has been conceived in her is from the Ruach HaKodesh. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Yeshua, which means Adonai saves, because he will save his people from their sins. All this happened in order to fulfill what Adonai had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. So this angel brings an astounding message to Joseph in a dream. Now I'm going to admit up front that perhaps there was no angel involved at all. Now the reason I say this is because the term angel in the Hebrew concept simply means a messenger. The messenger could take any form, from the spiritual to the common human. But it also could be a rather fuzzy term that just adds a spiritual element to a human thought. 
It was just a manner of speaking. We must remember just how God-oriented people were in that era. Life was not compartmentalized into the spiritual and the natural. On the other hand, there are some Bible commentators who insist that this angel is not only a real angel, but is the angel of the Lord, not a regular angel. Although most of Protestant Christianity does not accept the concept that the angel of the Lord is an additional manifestation of God Himself, because guess what? Then it would create a problem with the Trinity doctrine that God is entirely and only Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, that is precisely what the angel of the Lord is, a manifestation of God. And good Bible scholars acknowledge that reality. I find no evidence of that here in Matthew. See, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, the term for angel of the Lord is Malach Yehoveh. Yehoveh, not meaning Lord, but rather it is God's personal name that He first gave to Moses that's better known in Christianity as Jehovah. That term is not used in this verse. However, to get around the problem, some commentators say that in verse 21 where Joseph is told what to name this child that's in Mary's womb, and because the verse concludes with, because he will save his people from their sins, that in fact the verse should say, because he will save my people from their sins. Therefore, it has the angel speaking to Joseph, describing the people to be saved in a possessive manner. That is, they are the angel's people. So if the angel is claiming the saved people for himself, then the angel must be God, the angel of the Lord. But that's not what the verse says. The same Greek word, atos, is used twice to end this verse. The first time it means he, the second time it means his, not my. In Greek, there are two words that can be translated to my, emos and mu. Neither of those words are used here. So this is a regular angel, or perhaps it's just a divinely inspired thought that's being communicated by Joseph by means of a dream. So, Joseph was still deciding what to do. The angel tells him not to interpret the, uh, rather, uh, to uh, interrupt the marital process, but rather to continue because Mary is innocent. She has conceived a son by means of the Holy Spirit, that is, a divine miracle of God's will has occurred. Joseph's first thought would not have been how this was scientifically impossible, kind of like it's thought of today, but rather what the meaning of such an amazing thing might be. What's the meaning of it all? Therefore, the messenger tells him that what this child will do 
and that what he does will be reflected in the name of the child, Yeshua, because it means God saves. At least that's what most Bibles will tell you. If ever there were reasons for us to thoroughly understand the meaning of a name, it's here. Because it involves the most famous earth-changing name ever given. So we're going to cut away a little bit and take a detour to talk about it. I want to begin by saying that the name Yeshua, really better way to pronounce it, Yeshua, was in Christ's day actually among the most popular of all male names given. Hundreds, probably thousands of Jewish men was named Yeshua. Part of the reason for that is that Yeshua is really just another way of saying Joshua. Now, I'm going to borrow heavily from David Stern's commentary on the New Testament because I've not run across another Bible scholar who has done such a wonderful job of research and of making an understandable explanation about Yeshua's name. I also add some thoughts of Professor David Flusser and maybe a couple of my own as well. In Hebrew, the name Yeshua is spelled Yud Shin Vav Ein. In the English alphabet, we would say YSVA. It means the same, exactly the same, as the Hebrew root word Yoshia, which means he will save. However, Yoshia is a statement. He will save. It's a statement. Yeshua is a proper name. Yeshua is actually just a common contraction of another Hebrew name, Yehoshua. Those two names mean exactly the same thing because they are essentially exactly the same name. It's not unlike myself with the given name of Thomas, but I'm most often called Tom. Tom is a contraction of Thomas, but it means the same thing. So the names are virtually interchangeable. Now please hear me. Yehoshua does not mean God saves. It means Yehovah saves. Therefore, Yeshua does not mean God saves. It means Yehovah saves. It makes the author of the saving transaction quite specific and quite personal. But it also says something else that can produce quite a headache among believers. Even Christ's own name says he is not the author of salvation, rather it's his Father who is the author of salvation, and his name is Yehovah. Do not misunderstand me. 
I am in no way wavering from the fact that Jesus is the one who died on the cross for our sins, thus atoning for them. Nor do I deny that the Bible calls him Savior, but Yeshua's name throws the spotlight back upon his Father, Yehovah, rather than shoving the Father off stage and focusing everything on Jesus as modern Christianity tends to do. Throughout the Gospel accounts, we find Christ deflecting attention and glory from Himself. He says, I, I don't deserve it. All glory to my Father, His Father. Listen to how Mary, Miriam, perceived what was going on inside of her womb and whom she glorified as her Savior. In Luke, 141 to 48, when Elisheva, Elizabeth, heard Miriam's greeting, the baby in her womb stirred. Elisheva was filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and spoke up in a loud voice, How blessed are you among women! How blessed is the child in your womb! But who am I that the mother of the Lord should come to me? For as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Indeed, you are blessed because you have trusted that the promise Adonai has made to you will be fulfilled. Then Miriam said, My soul magnifies Adonai, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, who has taken notice of this servant girl in her humble position. For imagine it, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Continuing with the name of the child. Interestingly, the way the name was pronounced was different in Galilee than it was in Judea. Different dialects had developed between the two Holy Land regions, as well as a goodly number of different traditions. In Galilee, his name was pronounced Yeshu. That is, Galilean Jews at this time dropped the A, the Ein, at the end of the word or a name when they pronounced it out loud. Let me include that they wrote, when they wrote the name, the Ein, the last letter, would have been retained. So in the Galilee, the way his name was spoken sounded like Yeshu. In Judea, it sounded like Yeshua. To make an example for you, let's use the word almond, you know, the nut. In most of America, the word is pronounced almond, but in some parts of America, the L sound is dropped and it's pronounced almond. But in both areas, it's still spelled with the L in it. See, this is the effect of dialect. So you had the same thing going on now between the Galilee and Judea. 
But in older Jewish society, well after the time of the temple destruction, the use of the name Yeshu became derogatory. There were no longer any Judean versus Galilean dialects now after the temple destruction. Why derogatory suddenly? Because there is a Hebrew saying that means, may his name and memory be blotted out. The first letters of each of the Hebrew words used in that saying forms an acronym. And when you pronounce it, it comes out Yeshu. Historically, it is used by non-believing Jews in a mocking way when referring to Yeshua, Jesus. Now, oddly enough, the word Yeshu is no longer is used universally throughout Jewish society in the same way, with many Jews today rather innocently thinking that Yeshu is actually the proper name, the proper Hebrew name for Christ. Still, <laughs> I highly advise you that when you're talking with Jews about Christ, especially when you're in Israel, avoid saying Yeshu because it can cause some real conflict depending on who you're talking to. Just stick with Yeshua. Now, let me add one other thing. There is nothing wrong with using the name Jesus. It is the accepted English name for Yeshua. I've heard all kinds of arguments against using the name Jesus, including that it's the English translation of the Greek word Zeus. That's just false. I prefer to use the name Yeshua because it was his given name in his native tongue and also because English speakers can easily pronounce it. It's not hard. We usually give foreigners the privilege of being called by their given name in their native tongue, except when it's so difficult to pronounce that we Englishize it in some way. So my opinion is that for the most part, we ought to give Yeshua's actual birth name that same respect because we can. But it's not sinful and it's not pagan if we don't. I think we've exhausted this subject, so I'm going to move on here. If we were to compare Luke 1, uh, 1 thir uh, verse 31 to Matthew's birth narrative, we would find one of a few conflicts that, among, that, that occurs among the Gospel accounts. And there's several, actually, more than just a few. See, Luke has it, for instance, that it's Mary who was told the name for her child, while in our Matthew study, it's Joseph who's told. I don't think we need to make very much out of this. In Hebrew custom, the male child was given his name at his circumcision ceremony and there was no real conflict over which Jewish parent gave the boy his name. Besides, all things considered, 
It could well be that Luke and Matthew aren't in conflict at all. Rather, perhaps both Joseph and Miriam were told by God what to name the child. Now, I want to discuss this statement in Joseph's dream that the reason for Yeshua's name is because he is going to save people from their sins. Now, I'm not sure exactly how Joseph and others would have taken this. Yeshua was among the most common male names in that era, and among the Jews, the term salvation still mostly meant deliverance from an earthly oppressor. In fact, the Jews nearly universally believed that the hope for Messiah would deliver them, save them, from what? The oppression of Rome. The more spiritual name, uh, nature of the term as meaning salvation of sins in this era really had to do with being healed from sickness. It's to be remembered that there was no understanding of, of germs or viruses or bacteria, so there was few explanations in that time for where illness even came from. Mostly illnesses were seen as punishments from a God, and in Israel they were seen as divine consequences for disobedience to Jehovah. Sinning is the consequence for sinning meaning for them to break the laws of Moses. Sin and sickness were closely tied together among the Jews. We find instances within the Gospel accounts of Christ's healing of sickness being perceived by the Jewish observers as people being saved from their sins. You see the relationship? Now it's easy for us to look back and understand that it is Messiah's atoning death for our sins, saving us from eternal damnation that is in view in Joseph's dream. But few Jews in his day would have comprehended it that way. So now verse 22 brings all that Mary and Joseph are experiencing into a heavenly orientation, as opposed to a human orientation. That is, despite the terribly difficult circumstances that this couple is facing, there is a reason for it that goes well beyond their wants and needs. It is because God, through His prophets, prophesied that the Messiah would come into the world in just this way. And the precise prophecy from 700 years earlier is quoted in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore Adonai himself will give you people a sign. The young woman will become pregnant, bear a son, and name him Emmanuel. God is with us. Now before we discuss this particular verse, as the prophecy that Mary's pregnancy is fulfilling, I, I want to highlight something that has caused a goodly portion of the institutional church to veer off terribly off course in some ways. Perhaps more than ever, the Old Testament 
today is shunned as being irrelevant for Christians. And if it has any relevance at all remaining, then it must be only for the Jewish people. The birth of Christ essentially not only closed the book on the Old Testament, it abolished it, according to modern Christianity. None of this is true, and it actually defies Holy Scripture. But when this fundamental doctrinal attitude is taken, it greatly tarnishes and diminishes the Bible's divine authority so we can easily lose our way. Verse 22, then, directly connects the Old Testament to Mary's pregnancy. Yeshua's birth, life, death, and resurrection are all foretold in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have the record of those hundreds of years-old prophecies finally coming to fruition. The Old Testament is as much the foundation for the New as the foundation of a building is laid so that something can be constructed upon it. But once built, can that foundation be removed? Can you imagine building a house with the first step being to lay the foundation, then atop it you construct the living quarters, you bring in the furniture, you decorate it, and you move in. Once done, you ring up the contractor and you say, okay, you can come out and remove the foundation now. Because it's just not needed anymore. Just because the foundation has become buried underneath it doesn't make it obsolete. Yet the very prophecies of a Messiah along with where he'll come from, what his nature will be, what he'll do, what his life and death will mean, are not contained in the New Testament. It's contained in the Old. Those Old Testament prophecies are the foundation, and to remove it means the house collapses. David Stern claims that more than 50 Messianic pretenders have come and gone since just before Christ's birth. None of them fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. Only Yeshua has. The latest one is a fellow named Menachem Mendel Schneerson, a rabbi who passed away in 1994. His followers so revered this man that they declared that he was the Messiah, and many of them still believe he is. It matters not at all to his Orthodox Jewish flock that the rabbi, a good and decent man, by the way, fulfilled none of the Tanakh that they supposedly are learned in. None of it. Yet despite the fact that Yeshua of Nazareth did fulfill all the prophecies about a Messiah, these Orthodox, along with most other Jews, refuse to accept him. They want to wait for another. Now as for Isaiah's prophecy, notice that the complete Jewish Bible says that the the um, 
virgin will conceive and bear a son. We'll find the word virgin used in most English translations. However, that is not <laughs> what's in Isaiah's prophecy. The Hebrew word is Alma. It means maiden or handmaiden of good reputation. It inherently means a young unmarried woman who is of childbearing age. In Hebrew society, such a woman was supposed to remain in a virginal state. Not all did. So the idea of virginity was in the background of the definition of Alma, young woman, young maiden. However, that's not the main point of the word itself. It is meant to convey youthfulness, marriage eligibility of this woman. The Hebrew word for virgin, where virginity is the point, is betula. Betula. Two different things entirely. So if we're being intellectually honest about it, the context for this prophecy in the book of Isaiah was actually addressed to King Ahaz. It seems to be about the eventual birth of a Davidic prince that was meant as a sign of hope for the struggling kingdom of Judah. There is no good evidence that later Judaism took Isaiah's prophecy about the young woman conceiving a child to be a messianic prophecy, nor that it involved a miraculous conception whereby the male seed was actually God's. However, clearly, some among the Jewish people were open to understanding it that way. Nonetheless, the prophecy of a prince coming from David's line to rule over God's people fits right in with the Son of David focus of Matthew's genealogy of Jesus and the ancient biblical prophecies that also focus on the Messiah having to come from David's royal line. Now, it has been proposed by any number of Bible scholars that the concept of a young girl giving birth as a virgin is pagan in its source. That's where it came from. Yet, when challenged to come up with a, a parallel in the pagan world, it cannot be found. Except where a male is somewhere involved in the conception process. Interestingly, the same concept is vague among any currently known ancient Jewish sources. So the claim of a true virgin birth actually happening with the Holy Spirit of God substituting for the male seed is essentially unknown until the Gospel of Matthew. It is totally unique in concept and in event. Now, for non believers, this makes the story even less believable, if not silly. For believers, this makes the story all the more believable and wonderful. So, you see the dilemma. 
Just as trust in God and in Christ is a matter of faith, and faith itself is a divine gift, it's not something conjured up by our own human will or soul, so are the Gospel accounts insistent that Mary's virgin pregnancy was quite real, but it's a matter of faith in the truth of the Word of God. Now, naturally, to an atheist, to an agnostic, this story is laughable, largely because it cannot be tested, it cannot be reproduced in a laboratory. But the church has also fallen into a trap. Because more and more Bible commentators and mainstream pastors feel that we all feel that we read of miraculous events in the Bible, but they must have natural explanations if they're going to appeal to modern, well-educated people. Yet to the human mind. If a fully natural explanation can be proven, then it's hardly a divine miracle. Instead, this just becomes ancient myth. So it's no longer unusual at all for professing Christians to at once claim to be followers of Jesus, but at the same time dismiss the many miracles surrounding his conception, birth, life, death, and resurrection. Now, at the risk of offending, I warn those who embrace such a dual mindset that you are not likely saved believers at all, but rather you merely practice a modern philosophy of Jesus that you think He preached. Yet it is a philosophy that has been filtered, sifted, and picked over to rid it of anything divine, of anything miraculous, or even authoritative in the modern world. And it leans more towards whatever is the current political correctness. So sincere faith and trust then is no longer required, just participation in a group of the like minded. Now, verses 24 and 25 tell us that Yosef not only heard, but he also acted upon the instructions within his dream. This is the very definition of the Hebrew concept of Shema hearing and obeying, as opposed to the passive concept of listening but without action. Despite full knowledge, by Yosef that this child was certainly not of his seed, he fully accepted Yeshua as his son. In the Mishnah, Baba Batra 8.6, we read, If one says, This is my son, he's to be believed. Even more in the Gemara, this concept of sonship is expanded upon, and it says that this right of just declaring somebody their son is to be extended even as it involves 
matters of inheritance. This is important, really important, because since Joseph is in the royal line of David, then Yeshua inherits the right to the throne from his legal, but not his biological, father, Joseph. So in the end, Joseph did not issue Mary a get, the divorce document. Rather, likely somewhat sooner than customary, he hurried to complete the betrothal period by having her move in with him. Yet, the consummation of the union was postponed. This passage states, frankly, they did not have sexual relations until after Mary's divinely conceived child was born. Now, I want to sum up Matthew chapter 1 in this way. Matthew's purpose was expressly to begin his gospel by explaining who Yeshua is. Matthew says, He is the Messiah, He is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He was brought into this world by an otherwise nondescript, unimportant country girl. His unique conception was a direct work of the God of Israel and none else. Believability, plausibility play no roles. You know why? Because God does not bend His will or His ways to suit us. He does not move His will to meet mankind's expectations. Even Messiah's name was God-ordained because it says what He will do through Christ's earthly father, Yosef, Yeshua is legally connected to the throne of David. Through Christ's earthly mother, Miriam, his origin is divine. We're going to take up chapter 2 next time.